In today's episode, we open our Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 8, verses 4 through 25. In the wake of Stephen's martyrdom and scattered by persecution, the early Christian believers began to evangelize beyond Jerusalem. And one of these apostles, Philip, finds himself in Samaria, a region historically at odds with the Jews. And against all odds, his preaching and his miracles resonate faith within the hearts of many, including Simon the Magician. Renowned for his own sorcery and influence, he is one of those many converts, but his subsequent actions reveal a misunderstanding of the Holy Spirit and what it means for a Christian to possess power. Good morning and blessed Pentecost. Today is Thursday, July 27th, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word, where each weekday morning we explore the Holy Scriptures to which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Thy Strong Word is made possible by listeners like you who continue to support the ministry of KFUO Radio. We're also grateful for a generous gift from the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. LHF does important work in translating, making, and giving out Lutheran books and materials that stick close to the Bible, that focus on Jesus, and connect with our historic teachings of the Reformation. And the best part? LHF gives out all of these for free to pastors, missionaries, and those who need them. So to know more about what LHF does and how you can join them in this important work, Take a look at their website at lhfmissions.org. All right, folks. Well, join me in welcoming my guest this morning. He is a regular contributor to the show. It's the Reverend Nabil Noor, pastor of Trinity Lutheran Church in Hartford, South Dakota. Good morning, Pastor Noor, and welcome back to Thy Strong Word. A glorious morning to you as well, my dear brother in Christ, Phil and to the saints who are listening to us on this blessed day as we bring glory to the Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's so great to have you on. And, you know, this whole section, uh, the book of Acts, really, the whole book, has been difficult to divide up. So many things are going on in the early church. It seems like they're all going on at the same time. And Luke is giving us his accounts. (laughs) But today we find ourselves right after the few verses where he tells us at the beginning of chapter 8 that Saul is ravaging the church, and we pick up with Philip proclaiming Christ in Samaria. But before we read any of that text, um, I think it'd be a good idea for us to start our time together in prayer. Would you lead us in that prayer, please? I would be honored to do so. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Blessed Lord Jesus, these are your precious treasures that you have given to your church of old and of us today. These words are inspired by the Holy Spirit and have been passed to us that we may know the truth and, uh, that sets us free. May that truth that is written for our learning and for our spiritual maturity may equip us exhort us and encourage us to be your humble servant as we evangelize with the gifts you have provided to us as your servant who have gone before us, specifically Philip, Peter, and John, and the others. To that end, be with us and among us so that we may truly 
equip the saints who are listening, as well as we ourselves might grow through the word that you have given to us. It is in the most powerful name of the Lord, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen. Last time we were together, we saw uh, Stephen's execution. So things weren't all just roses for the early disciples and apostles who are pressing against a culture that certainly has already rejected the Messiah and continues to reject the message. And we ended, as I said earlier, with verse 3, But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Then we get into our text for today. But before I start the text, would you like to give us any more background on where we've been at as we've been going through the book of Acts? Maybe catch people up in case they've missed the previous episode. Absolutely. We can go back all the way to the first chapter where Luke specifically uh, emphasizes the Theophilus, which literally lover of God. And we do know historically that this is the man that paid for the work of this book to be written and for him to travel and to do all of those things. And there he specifically says, I have done my homework. I've done my interviews. I've done my research. Now that I have been privileged to do all of these things, here is the result of it. And with that, we get the picture of what we have. The book of Acts, of course, is the history of the church's growth. And what we do know is how God used these men to make known the message. And you remember at the end of the Gospel of St. Matthew, Jesus said to them, go and make disciples by teaching and baptizing. And it's an ongoing uh, activity. And we see the disciples actually carrying that task that God has given to them so that they might share with others the good news and that is where we are today we get ourselves after chapter six where uh, the disciples chose others to help them carry on the ministry so they didn't have to wait on table then we're introduced to chapter seven where we are introduced to one of those faithful men stephen who was the first martyr or witness in the greek to be exact and then his murder and stoning with the approval of Saul before his conversion, which is the next chapter, chapter 9, where we meet him at the road, on the road to Damascus. And so it is very helpful to see how this whole picture really fits together so well and what the disciples, now that the Lord has left them, and what they are doing right now. So this is really profound, really, when you think about it, that these men are changing the world one soul at a time. I think it's quite amazing. And if we think about it, too, Saul, who we know is Paul later on in the narrative, right now Saul is persecuting, going from house to house. And it says in our previous section that they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except for the apostles. It seems to me that God is using even the uh, evil intentions of Saul, who's oppressing the Christians, he's using that to get Christians spread out in this diaspora. More people are going to be reached because of this persecution. I'm sure they didn't think about it that way at the time, but it's interesting to look back and see it that way. 
Very true. And here is the other thing which you highlighted. I didn't think about it as I, as I was preparing for this, but in, uh, excuse me, in Romans 8, 28, we do know that it says that God works in all situations for our good and for his glory. You know, nobody wants to go through suffering. No one really wants to go through any of that kind of thing. And yet God takes the wickedness and the evil and always is used for good. Even though we may not see it, we may not understand it, but there it is. And we see this right here. And also, if you remember, and I'm certain you do, and maybe even our uh, saints who are listening to us this morning, even the book of Peter in chapter one, he talks about those who have been dispersed and how those early Christians took that message out to the world by the people themselves, which of course, this is what we do today as well. Absolutely. And that's really introduces us to what happens next in our narrative, starting at verse four, I'm going to read through verse eight. Now, there, uh, pardon me. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. When they heard him and saw the signs that he did, for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. So, pausing right there. So, Philip is one of those who's in that diaspora. He's in that scattering of people, and there he is going down to the city of Samaria. Uh, not a city, although I think some manuscripts you just say a city. Uh, I don't suppose that's a particular city that we know about, but either way, he's proclaiming and pointing them to Christ. Right. Uh, if I may, this section that is allotted for me today from Acts chapter 8 is really divided into three different sections. First, we deal with Philip and the work that the Lord has blessed him to do. Then when we introduce to Simon the magician, who appears on the surface that he is converted, and yet later on when we meet the third portion, Peter and John coming in, and he wants to buy what they have, and then of course the curse that comes upon him and calling him to repentance. Having said all of this, what you read is so also very true, uh, realize Samaria is not a city, but a locality of more than one area. It's a ge geographic location. Actually, I was there just there three weeks ago on my tour to Israel. And I like to highlight also in the Gospel of St. John, chapter 4, we see Jesus doing the same things, you know, a few years earlier before his uh, death and resurrection. In the Greek specifically, it says there was an appointed destiny for him to go to Samaria. Rather, normally the Jews would just go all the way around, but it was an appointment, literally a divine appointment for Jesus to go there. And we know of the first evangelist, literally is a Samaritan woman who goes into the city and says, hey, come over and see this man who has told me everything. And so we're picking this up, having already the seed of the word has already been planted. But now it's magnified with the gift of Philip who comes into this community and he begins to preach. As you and I know, having been pastors for some years now, when we preach, the word take effect. 
Sometimes we are privileged to see it. Other times we will never see it till maybe until we get to heaven. But be assured of this. Whenever the word is preached, it will accomplish the task that the Lord has given to us. To use us for his benefit. And we can confirm that and affirm that through the prophet Isaiah chapter 55 where he says, my word will never come back to me void, but it will accomplish the purpose for which I have sent it. So whatever God sends the word, we do know there is results. It's not what we expect, and we don't know how soon it will be, but we have the confidence and the concrete reality that when the word of the Lord is being preached, it will take root on the hearts of people. And as I said a few moments ago, it is clearly evident sometimes immediately, other times at a later date. And this is what we are seeing right here. There's the immediate outcome of people rejoicing at what they had seen, the removal of the unclean spirits. Of course, Jesus did the same things. And the people who were paralyzed and the lame and the healing power that came through the word via the evangelist Philip. Now, of course, the power that he's doing is in the name of Jesus, too. But what would, Amen. You, what would you say to people, though, who say that the, the crowds at that time, they're hearing the word in which we know the word is effective. We know that. But God also gave them the ability to do signs. The unclean spirits were being healed. The, the paralyzed and the lame were being healed. Um, what would you say to critics who say, well, it's awfully convenient that those miraculous acts don't accompany the word today. You know, they, they might even claim, I'll, I would believe if you were able to do the things that Philip was doing here. How do we respond to that? Well, I've, I've been asked specifically that question, and I say it, and I will say this again. The Lord gave them that power for a specific time, for a specific reason, for the growth of the church. And remember, once the word was put into the canon, which we have today as the Bible, there was no longer any need for that because now we can read the word and hear the word through the, um, the scripture. And so why doesn't God use miracles? I can't say he doesn't. It's just not as evident as it was during the time of the apostles. But remember, and this is the key, when the apostles started, we didn't have the church as we have it today. So it was a new movement on the march. And God used the power he gave to these men to change the hearts by the physical sign and the evidence that they were doing compared to what we have today. Can God use miracles today? Absolutely. Does he do it today? He probably does maybe not on the same scale or as evident as this, but God still uses miracle because he's not limiting himself to what could or would. You and I are limited because we don't have the power that God gave to the apostles of old, but God is not limited. Having said this, I will say this much to you. I do believe in miracles because it has happened to me. And I'll give you an example of that. Um, probably about 40 years ago, I was just newcomer to this country. I was uh, living at the dormitory while I was going to high school. 
uh, a college there is. And I went out with the young people to play football, American football. And um, I ran and I went into a hole and I twisted my knee and I could not walk. I was carried out, went to the doctor. I had no insurance. To make the story short, the doctor said, I need surgery. I couldn't afford $7,000 then. Mm. And um, my parents didn't have any money. So I thought I will do it. Uh, I'll go to live without it. This went on for about a week and I just could not get my leg to get any better. And I finally said, okay, I'll do it. And then I had a friend of mine that stopped over says, Nabil, have you prayed to the Lord to see if he will alleviate the pressure and will take it away from you? And I never even thought of that. I wasn't even a practicing Christian at that moment. And I literally got down on my knees and I cried my heart out to the Lord. I says, Lord, you know my situation. I don't have the money. And of course, I've never had the surgery and I was completely healed. I went to the doctor again. They said, I don't know what happened except a miracle put your knee back together. Now, people can believe that or say, no, I won't believe it because I didn't see it, but I'm telling you it happened to me. So, you know, God is not limited to what he can do. You and I are limited. But again, the emphasis of why then and why not now is because God's timing is different than ours. He's not, he doesn't have to prove himself or to talk about anybody to say this can be done or this can't be done. We leave it up to him. I think it's a wise point to say that God doesn't limit himself, although he might limit us and often does. Uh, And, you know, when it comes to miracles, I think you and I would agree that certainly God can and does perform (laughs) miracles these days. But I think even the miracles he does perform are often dismissed or more easily dismissed in these modern times. I think people are far less open to those types of things, which I then think might mean that they're a little less effective for even if even if God were desiring to accompany the message with signs, people would just ignore the signs too. And I think of the story of the rich man and Lazarus, right? Even if someone should rise from the dead, they're still not going to believe. They have Moses and the prophets, let them listen to them. And and I think that has a lot to do with it too. So yeah, miracles in terms of signs accompanying the message, not so much. Miracles yeah. in terms of God taking care of his creation and helping us bear the curse of sin. And yeah, I think that happens all the time. Um, are we on the same page, you think? Absolutely. And I agree with you all. You know, I can tell you God still does miracles today. Okay. I, I'm sure you are a father. Are you are you I married? I am. And... I'm married. Okay. I have two children. So think think when your wife and you expecting your first baby. That's a miracle. How does that happen? I mean, there is nothing that we could do. It's a miracle in the act of love that God gives us this child, okay? It's a miracle. And yet people dismiss it. Oh, it's no big deal. It's just a tissue or whatever it is. And you are absolutely correct, dear brother Phil, in the sense that the truth is there are so many people who don't want to hear the truth. And even if they did see the miracle, says, oh, that was magic of some sort. And of course, that's in the next portion uh, following. But so many people think they are so wise and so educated 
they will not believe the truth, even if they saw it before their very own eyes. And that's the sad part. And you are absolutely correct. Even if they did see it, just like in chapter 16, where the rich man who was unnamed and Lazarus, who means God is my helper, said, even if you could see a miracle, you wouldn't believe because they have Moses and the prophet. And isn't that what we have today? We have Moses and the prophet and we have the evangelist now. And so if you don't believe the written word, you're not going to believe, even if you saw a miracle. Speaking of the signs that Philip was doing, I find it also fascinating that he's doing these signs in the name of Jesus, of course, and the ones that Luke lists anyway, it doesn't mean they're all the only signs he was doing, but the ones he lists seem to fall into one of two categories, spiritual or temporal or earthly. So he says unclean spirits came out spiritual and then paralyzed and lame, physical. It really demonstrates that, that of course, God himself, but this man Christ whom Peter is proclaiming, who died for their sins, he has the power not just over the spiritual stuff that you can't always see, but also over the physical stuff. And isn't that interesting that Luke himself, the doctor, highlight this? Of course, he was not around when the Savior was. This came later, and he was a fellow with Paul, right? He, he traveled with Paul, and he had witnessed some of those things, and he spent time with Mark, and he spent time with Mary, and we do know he spent time with Peter. So he's, he's bringing up the same things that the Savior, the blessed Lord of creation, Christ Jesus, who healed exactly. You remember, he did the same things, right? He got the unclean spirits out of people. We know that. He got um, those who were lame and paralyzed. Even those who were dead, he raised it. So again, with Jesus, there's no limitation. With us, there is. And he does take the whole person, both the spiritual and the physical and the temporal, and he puts them back to order. And of course, the Apostle Paul talks about this. All of creation groans to be delivered from this burden that has come apart because of sin. And thank God for his death and resurrection that heals us right now, but ultimately will be healed completely when we are with him in paradise. Well, verse 6 says, The crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip, and they heard him and saw the signs, etc., etc. Verse 9, though, But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. And that's where we'll pause at the end of verse 13. So lots of people are coming to faith, including this guy named Simon, who was a magician. Brother, tell us about Simon. Well, before we do that, let me back up uh, just one verse of the previous portion where it says, everyone was with such great joy at what God was doing among them through the ministry of Philip. We are told there was much joy in that city. 
and you as a pastor and me as a pastor, when we pray, when we pray for some of our saints and they come back and say, pastor, I have received good news. There is much joy in our hearts because we know God is at work behind the scene. What do we know about Simon? Simon is a magician. He practiced that. He made money out of that and he charged people for that. That much we do know. And what he does here today, uh, people followed him. You know, it's kind of like, um, who's the magician on, uh, makes the twin towers disappear. And I mean, they're no longer with us. I can't yeah, remember. that's, a, uh, who was that? Is that David Copperfield? Uh, Copperfield. Okay. Yeah. So he got, he does magic, right? And people are awestruck and they pay millions of dollars. Well, he's, he's got his millions of dollars and followers and it's all magic. It's all the slant of the hand. How he does it, I don't know. This guy reminds me so much of Copperfield himself. And what he was doing, he was trying to build a name for himself. Notice it is the people in verse 10, they all paid attention to him from the, light, from the least of the greatest saying, this man is the power of God that is called great, okay? So they are giving the title for him, not God himself. And, um, and they paid attention to him because for a long time, he had amazed them with his magic. And so what happens right here, Simon is using his craft to get the attention of the people and to cause them to follow him. Into the midst of this, uh, then Philip is here, verse 12. Then Philip comes in and he begins what? Where, but when they believed Philip as he preached the good news, notice again the emphasis on what? The charisma, right? On the word being preached, the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus they were baptized. Following Simon was completely different. It didn't result in outpouring of repentance. It did not uh, result in a change of life. But for Philip, it was completely a different uh, program, if you will. Hearts were changed. They wanted to be part of the kingdom. And they were baptized into the name of Jesus, both men and women. And of course, then we're saying that we are told that when Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with, with Philip. Uh, we in this portion we don't see the whole story of what Philip, excuse me, what Simon is uh, planning on doing. Uh, just since. I know the scripture and I've studied this before. What I believe, and you can correct me if you don't agree with me here, brother. I think uh, Simon was in on this for the long haul of getting the power that Philip had and he wanted it for himself. Because we are told he shadowed him. That's kind of like a nurse shadowing a doctor or somebody who's trying to get his residency. They are shadowing what the doctor is doing so they can pick up all the tips and all the secrets of the in-house. And this is what we see Simon doing right here. And he was amazed at what Philip was doing. He saw the man Philip. He never saw the savior behind Philip who was directing every thought and every word of Philip's proclamation. 
Philip was not so much concerned about the miracles. He was preaching, and through the preaching, the Lord worked the miracles. Um, it is through that power of the living word, the change of people's lives, physically, mentally, but above all, spiritually, was taking form in here. They were being confirmed and affirmed in the faith. And that's what moves them to be baptized and to follow the true teaching, the good news of salvation that Christ Jesus brings into this world through his death and resurrection. And so for Simon, I think it's only a play. I shouldn't say I think. I know it's only a play, even though it says he was converted and he was baptized. But later on, we see why he was doing all of those things. Now, of course, I can't see the heart of Simon. All we can do is go with what we have in the words. And then in the later portion of the scripture, we see where Peter really gets angry at him and tells him exactly what he thinks of him. Yes, and we will get to that when we come back from the break. Uh, so, folks, don't go anywhere. When we return, Pastor Nora and I will keep on going through our little section of Acts chapter 8. We'll see you on the other side. These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. But they need our help, because good Lutheran books for kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan 316. Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo. And with me this morning is the Reverend Nabil Noor, pastor of Trinity Lutheran Church in Hartford, South Dakota, and also fourth vice president of the LCMS. Always great to have him on. Now, folks, Thy Strong Word is always within your reach. Well, here's what I mean. If you're in St. Louis, just tune to AM850 on your radio. For those outside of that signal's reach, though, you don't have to fret. You can subscribe to the program using your go-to podcasting app. Or you can download the KFUO radio app. It's compatible with both iOS and Android devices, and you can listen whenever you like, live or at your own pace on KFUO.org. And if you want to chat with me or you want to share some thoughts or you have any questions, I'm all ears. You can reach me by dropping an email to pastorboo at gmail.com or by connecting with me on Facebook. All right, folks, Pastor, before the break, you had said something I think is intriguing and it's worth exploring. Um, and now we know the rest of the story. In fact, I want to read the rest of the story. Uh, but you said that, you know, you think Simon may have been in it from the beginning. It was a long con. He saw them doing the miracles and the signs, and he thought, I'm going to do whatever I can to be able to do that too. So uh, the, the only question I have with that, though, is, and, and we wrestled with this in the Old Testament, too. Like, for instance, when the 
the ghost of of uh, Samuel appeared, it said it was Samuel. So do we take the narration of the Bible to be the fact, right? So it was the ghost of Samuel, or it was Samuel being you know conjured up, or was it a demon posing to be Samuel? And if that's the case, then why does the Bible say it was Samuel? A similar situation here. Even Simon himself believed, it said in verse 13, and after being baptized, he continued on with Philip. So I just wonder if maybe he could have very well been in it as a long con, but maybe even as a believer, he was pulled away, distracted. His own sinful concupiscence was riled back up once he saw those signs and those miracles performed. Because as those who haven't heard the story goes, he's going to want to try to get some of this stuff for himself because he's you know a magician and he thinks it'd be great to add to his repertoire, so to speak. But anyway, what would you say to that? This idea that well, maybe first let yeah, me first let me thank you for pushing uh, against this because it is you got to take the scripture for what it is. Even Simon himself believed, okay, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. If we stop right there, that would have been just enough, right? And we'll stop with this one. But think of and some of, uh, some of the saints are on the three-year series, and they've been doing the parables. And in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus talks about the word, which is the seed that has fallen and has growth, but some gets choked and others just completely falls on hard soil. So if, for me, since we, again, since we do know the whole story right here, I do believe what the scripture says that, you know, he believed and he was baptized. I, I grant that completely, no question. It just, it's later on that we see what he has. And you said it so very well, his old nature raises his ugly head. How grounded was he in the word? Was he strong enough to take the word at full value or was he seeking the power? As you look at it, and you said it too, uh, his old sinful nature rose up again desiring something that wasn't his to be given in the first place. And this is where Peter chastises him. And so um, if we stop again with the portion that you read earlier, everything that looked absolutely wonderful, but when you mm -hmm. read the rest of the story, you need to ask the question, what made the change for him to go back to the old ways? And that's the question that we will be addressing here shortly. Yeah, and let's get into that text a little bit. I'm only going to go through verse 20, so here we go. There's actually two different sections going on here. There's a little interlude before we get back to Simon. It begins with verse 14. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Now, actually, I'm going to pause right there. I'm not going to tell you what Peter said just yet. But going back up, um, well, you can take it any direction you want. I mean, uh, my first question is going to be about, all right, the apostles hear that they haven't had the Holy Spirit fall on them yet. 
they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. That's going to take some unpacking, especially for some of my uh, recovering Pentecostal friends out in the audience. You know, this sounds a whole lot like you're baptized and then later you receive some sort of baptism by fire. And or uh, is this baptism in the name of the Lord Jesus mean that they didn't receive a Trinitarian baptism? Uh, Help us understand this, Pastor. Well, uh, it is the $64 million question that's going to be asked. Why? Uh, if you are baptized in Jesus' name, is that not Trinitarian? Why does it have to be in the formula that he gave us in Matthew, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? That's number one. Number two, it says that the disciples specifically asked that the, by the laying on of the hand that they would receive the uh, Holy Spirit upon them, and the Holy Spirit has come upon them, right? And so we do know that. How do we grasp with all of the un- certainties and I, I don't want to put uncertainties on the word let me hear let me explain that very clearly it's not the uncertainty of the word it's the uncertainty of what we understand and how we can understand it some people say you have to be baptized in the name of jesus and other people said no you need to be baptized in the name of the father son and the holy spirit of course which we, which we believe and confess and teach according to what god has given to us and we do also believe that the holy spirit had uh, come does come with the gift of baptism uh, is it possible and this is the question because i remember when we went through our exit sheet in the old testament as well as the new testament i remember dr mitchell saying to us the holy spirit would come upon the people and would leave and it was not after pentecost when the holy spirit came to stay and reside because jesus's ministry has been finished i don't know the answer if i could give it a hundred percent with certainty But I believe this, that we have trouble understanding the scripture in its totality because we are limited with our mind. The finite cannot comprehend the infinite. And as I said earlier on the top of the show, in the previous portion, that God does not limit himself. He limits limits us. And having said all of this, What we do know is that the Holy Spirit did come upon them after. Why? I can't answer why it didn't come at the time of baptism in the name of Jesus. But what is the good news is when the apostles heard the good work that is being done among the Samaritans, they go and follow up with what they had heard and they begin to pray for the people. And what a wonderful image of the leaders of the church praying for the workers who are in the church that they may grow. I don't know if I've answered the question that you were looking looking for, dear brother, Right. but taking the word at its full value is that we may not understand everything. Though we would like to, it is impossible for us to understand everything. Well, this idea of laying hands on them to receive the Holy Spirit after they had been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, this really only happens here in the book of Acts. I don't believe we see it anywhere else in Scripture. So again, back to that idea that Acts is often descriptive, not prescriptive. 
perhaps, very good statement. Right. Very per- good statement. Perhaps we we're just getting a little insight into how they were trying to manage the church at the early time. I mean, the Samaritans hadn't really yet been, I guess to use modern-day language, received into fellowship with the apostles. And so they've come down to affirm that what they're believing and teaching and confessing is consistent with the church. And uh, But now we're back to Simon because Simon's still hanging around. And when he saw this spirit, this Holy Spirit, uh, being given to the people, having the laying on of hands of the apostles, he wants to shortcut the whole process. He says, here's some money, right? Give me some of this power also so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Now, verse 20, it says, Peter says to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. And he's going to go on to tell him to repent. But his heart isn't right, obviously, because the Bible says so. Uh, Did his heart turn after this worldly shortcut? You know, money can buy anything after he believed? I don't know. Was he wanting this power so that he could give more people the Holy Spirit? Like, did he have good intentions? Doesn't matter. Or was he wanting to go back to his old ways and he saw, wow, something real is happening and I'd love to be able to, I guess, uh, use that, maybe go back to my old life. I guess you see this as him pretty much wanting to go back to his old life. I I believe so. And I tell you what, one of the, when I was preparing for this uh, earlier, so that I, because I do like to go through the text and kind of study and prepare what I'd expect. And the one thought that kept uh, haunting me, it's a thought that really haunt me, how often I have seen evangelists on television today, modern day evangelists who say, if you send me a hundred dollars, God is going to do mighty things in your life. Oh, yeah. You know, and I keep thinking, do we have to have the hundred dollars so that God can do something? Or are we selling what God can do for the people? Of course, they don't get it. Or, um, you know, you, you've, you've seen people saying, you come up here if you are lame or crippled or something, and I'm going to heal you. And then when they lay the hands on them, they're not healed. This is, oh, you don't have enough faith. So they kind of put it back on the person's guilt anyway. But this is kind of what Simon reminds me of. Uh, again, I can't read into his heart, but just what, what the scripture says and the harsh words Peter uses. Okay, Peter was there. Peter saw, Peter heard, and he said, may your silver perish with you. Those are harsh words from Peter to speak. I, I believe this is the only place where we do know where Peter literally uh, asks somebody to perish, and he knows the burden of that, and this is why verse 22 is so beautiful, because he offers repentance to Simon, just as the Lord does for Peter in John 21. If you remember that? Yes, and let's uh, actually let's actually read a few more verses because that's exactly what happens. Because he says, "You have neither part nor lot in this matter." This idea that he's essentially kicking him out of the church, right? Excommunication. You exactly. Be, you are out now. Verse 22. Repent. Right? Turn back. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. 
Verse 23, for I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Now, verse 24 says, Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. We only have one more verse left in our text for this morning. I'm going to pause right there, though. So, yes, he basically says, you know, you are excommunicated, but there is hope. There's hope for everybody. Repent, turn back. Pray to the Lord. Uh, but he doesn't, does he, brother? No, he doesn't, actually. Yeah, he said, you pray for the Lord. Pray for me to the Lord. And it reminded me of Saul, not Paul, the first king of Israel, when he breaks the rules against Samuel. And, you know, uh, Samuel says, you have... Uh, brought sin upon us and he said what pray to the lord your god he doesn't say pray right. to the lord my god this is kind of what i see here and peter the gentle the gentle shepherd who was humbled by christ you remember in john 21 where the lord tells him peter if you love me and if you looked at it in the greek it's so much more powerful than because it was the agape versus phileo and then finally, the Lord uses the same word, phileo. That's for another day. But the aspect is that Jesus comes to Peter's level and says, Peter, I know what you have done. And Peter repents, and the Lord uses him mightily to go out to be a shepherd of his flock. And he feeds them and nurtures them. And throughout the writing and all of the stuff that we know about Peter, he has done wonderful. And he's giving this young man, Simon, saying, Simon, I kicked you out of the church to cause you to see the damage that you are walking in. Your heart is not right before God. And this is an opportunity for you, young man. Come down, confess your sins, turn away from your wickedness, and pray to the Lord, if possible. And we do know with God all things are possible. And the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. Peter is hitting him where his bag of money is. He said to him, get rid of all of this because your heart is wicked. It's evil. You are not doing what God has called you to do. You're going to the old ways of living to draw out of the bag of finances of silver and gold so that you may be rich. This is why you're asking for these things. And sadly, Simon really does not repent, but he turns to Peter and he says, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. He doesn't so much say uh, in the sense of repentance of heart, but what he does say is that I don't want to perish and I don't want to do any of those things, but it's not the cleansing of the heart or the beauty of the heart, but rather the perishing that he's concerned with. And anytime you're focusing on the earthly things rather than the eternal things that God promised to us, we are literally in deep, deep trouble. And this is where we see Simon in this category here today. And this is why he says to, pray, to Peter, you pray. It's kind of like, and then maybe you've experienced this in your ministry. Pastor, pray for me because <laughs> you have more power than I do. And I say, <laughs> no, I'm sorry. I don't have any more power. 
I'm just a servant, just like you. You can pray to the Lord yourself and the Lord will hear your prayers because we are praying in the name of Jesus. And this is what I see right here. Um, I would have loved to have been in the background as a fly on the wall to see the conversation or to see Simon's face, but we don't have that. What we do have is the word and how the word really works and connects us to the truth. And Peter gently and lovingly or harshly first, yes. tells him right away, you don't have the right attitude, but then he says, brother, I'm calling you to repentance because it's of the urgency of the time for you before it is too late. And I'm sure as a pastor, you've dealt with people and you say to them, brother or sister, you need to repent before it's too late. You see the danger, you know where they're going and you know what's going to happen if they don't. But until they repent of that, you just feel sorry for them. And I see Peter saying, this is the time to do it. I definitely get the sense of Peter feeling sorry for him. In verse 23, he says, For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond, or are slaved, to iniquity. So he, he looks at him, I believe, at least the way I read it, and especially with these words you think are these harsh words, I think they're harsh in the reality of things, but they're also a recognition that he's just full of bitterness, he's full of worldliness, He's enslaved to sin, and Simon doesn't say, you know, forgive my unbelief. He doesn't say increase my belief. He just says, well, I don't want those bad things to happen to me, right? So, yeah, pray to the Lord your God. He doesn't say that, but it's very close, like you pointed out. Pray for me to the Lord. And you're right about pastors. We don't have red phones in our offices, right? Direct connections. No, any any oh, more direct than yours. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how many saints have asked me, Pastor, you pray because I know Jesus listens to you. You have more power. And I don't no, no, no. have any more power. Like you said, I like, and when I borrow your line, I don't have a phone with a red line on it directly to the Lord. Really, you don't, and we that's don't. Right. What we do have is the living word, and that's what we dish out every week, and that's what we use to give them comfort. Um, and that's the only joy and privilege we are blessed to give on behalf of the Savior. Well, the very last line of our text for this morning is verse 25, and it says, Now, when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Um, the they, brother, that's Peter and John, I assume? Correct. It's in the plural. Now, when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel. Many villages of the Samaritans. And, uh, you know, think, um, you remember, again, let's go back for a moment for John chapter 4, when the disciples sent all of, uh, when Jesus, excuse me, sent the disciples into the town to buy bread, um, right? And why would he need to send all 12? Let's just for just a moment. Why would he send 12 of them to buy? How much are they going to buy? For enough for about three weeks or something. But he sent them because he had that divine meeting. And what we see right here is uh, perhaps the meeting that they came back and said, oh, who brought him food here? And he's talking to a woman. And maybe Peter and John woke up because 
it does say in scripture, one of these days you will see more clearly, you know, we know that from Paul's perspective, that the disciples return and they go preaching to many villages of the Samaritans. It is not limited only to Jerusalem. Remember, he said, beginning in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so if we had a bull's eye, the circle is widening, the gospel is spreading, the news is going out, and the disciples are active. In the earlier part of this portion, we saw other people, evangelists. We met uh, Philip in chapter 6 of Acts. But specifically now in uh, verse 25, we see that they, both um, Peter and John, and then maybe others of the disciples who went out and began to speak with the Samaritans. What do they do? The gospel. And if you look at it in the English, in the Greek, euangelion, which is translated, the good news. And that's the good news we have spoken here. And you and I are privileged today on this Thursday, the 27th, to communicate the gospel to those who don't see us, but hear our voices. And they receive the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's the beauty of this text. It absolutely is. Well, folks, I'd like to thank my guest this morning, the Reverend Nabil Noir, pastor of Trinity Lutheran Church in Hartford, South Dakota, just across the border from me, and fourth vice president of the LCMS. Pastor, thanks as always for being on the show. It is my privilege, honor, and blessing, and may the Lord bless you and our saints as we continue to make God's word Nice long words forever and ever and ever. Amen. Tomorrow, folks, when we come back, we're going to finish up the rest of Acts chapter 8. Uh, following the events in Samaria, Philip is guided by an angel of the Lord to a lonely desert road heading south. There, he encounters an Ethiopian eunuch, a high-ranking official in charge of the queen's treasury, and he's returning from a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Despite his devotion, the eunuch is struggling to understand a passage from the book of Isaiah. So Philip, prompted by the Spirit, approaches him and explains the gospel of Jesus, interpreting the scripture the eunuch was reading as a prophecy of Christ's sacrificial death. This results in the eunuch's confession of faith and immediate baptism in a nearby water source, that and more tomorrow. But until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray. Father, keep us in thy strong hand.